podcast is brought to you by Tim Burkett, the author of a new book entitled Zen in the Age of Anxiety. Please listen to podcast number 674, where Tim and Greg discuss his new book. During their interview, they discuss the issues of unrest and dissatisfaction in our society today, and how the Zen perspective, along with meditation, can help one relieve their anxiety. Zen in the Age of Anxiety covers many topics, from how we look at money and the stress it creates in our lives, to how to live a life of humility and self-respect. If you're dealing with anxiety or issues of fear, then I highly recommend you listen to Greg's interview with author Tim Burkett about his new book, Zen in the Age of Anxiety. You can also learn more by going to Tim's website at www.mnzencenter.org where you can read Tim's blog and learn more about the Zen practice. Enjoy this interview and podcast number 674 with author and Zen teacher, Tim Burkett. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Estelle, as I do every time I start one of these podcasts, I thank the thousands of listeners out there over the years who have either followed me for the last 14 years or who are following me now. To all of you, thank you so much uh, for doing that and for your comments and for your kind words on these words of wisdoms that come from our authors. And one of my sources for actually getting some of these books is Shambhala, um, Shambhala Publications. And our guest today, who's joining us from the Berkeley area, is Estelle Frankel. And Estelle has a new book out called The Wisdom of Not Knowing, Discovering a Life of Wonder by Embracing Uncertainty. Good day to you, Estelle. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with our listeners about the content in the book and the purpose for you writing a book about the wisdom of not knowing. And obviously this is a great topic because we're in uncertain times. And I think many people out there would love to know from your vantage point, how they might be able to better deal with that. And Estelle, I'm going to let them know a tad bit about you. Estelle Frankel is a practicing practicing psychotherapist, author, spiritual director, and popular public speaker. In her private practice in Albany, California, she works with individuals and couples providing brief and long-term psychotherapy and spiritual mentoring. She's also a seasoned teacher of Jewish mysticism and meditation who offers workshops on the intersection of psychology and spirituality, Kabbalah, and healing. And, and the Muscar Mindful and Positive Psychology. Estelle is author of two books, one which we're going to be talking about this morning called The Wisdom of Not Knowing, and another book called Sacred Therapy, Jewish Spiritual Teachings on Emotional Healing and Inner Wholeness. And we will have a link to that as well. She's also the author of numerous essays and has been published by professional journals, literary anthologies, and popular magazines. Well, Estelle, obviously this whole situation with not knowing is certainly uh, been in the news. Um, we never know what's going to happen the next day with administration, with our government, with our political systems, with lots of things that are going on around us. 
And you start the book off in the introduction with a quote from Plato. The only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. You explain that your book is about exploring silent white spaces between the lines of our stories. For the listeners that are out there today listening to us, how do you recommend that people listening embrace this concept of not knowing? Ah, well, I think building spiritual muscle vis-a-vis the unknown and uncertain begins by recognizing that we have fears of the unknown, that we have resistance to this, and it's wired into us by evolution. Uh, for you know, cavemen, the unknown often meant uh, some kind of uh, threatening predator. Darkness was frightening. Uh, so we are wired to prefer certainty, to be in the know in order to feel safe. And our knowing often interferes with our ability to see what is actually happening in the present moment. And it can interfere with our capacity to learn, to grow, to try new things. So I think that the work begins at the lowest octave with mastering our fear of the unknown and just being willing to step into those spaces of uncertainty and sit with the trepidation. And so that's, I I deal with not knowing at several different octaves, you might say to use a musical analogy, but this first octave has to do just with fear of the unknown. And, And people are anxious. My clients I see every day are very anxious because of uh, this backdrop, they, if they already had anxiety, it's it's worse now because every day we're bombarded with a kind of chaos. Yeah, it's kind of exacerbated as a result of what's going on in the world. And it's not like, you know, I've heard this comment before, you know, we've we've always had times where things are uncertain, right? And I think we're wired, um, as you talk about in the book as well, uh, to want to know and to yeah. actually enter that state of unknowing is such familiar ground for us. So you state that through the process of inquiry into what is known, we grow our souls. It's what um, is unknown. Living, yeah. Y- yeah. Unknown. Yeah. Yep. If I said known, I meant to say unknown. See what, yeah. see how I'm wired. Um, you state <laughs> we're living mysteries of unfathomable depths, living in an unimaginable mysterious universe. Um, that our knowledge rests in a vast sea of not knowing. Um, what can the listeners experience and and how would you how would you explain to them to unplug the way they're wired, the way their brains are wired, uh, to not accept the unknowing, but to, you know, to embrace this, unknowing as something beautiful, as something that can bring them enlightenment, as something that can be embraced. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I was beginning to say that there are many different octaves to the work of not knowing. So we begin by noticing the places where we're scared, 
where we project the known onto the present moment and we're distorting. And we do this a lot with ourselves and with our partners, with our friends. We, we want to predict. We're human predicting machines. So we, we think we know, let's say, our, our, our life partner. And that knowing can interfere with the surprise of our partner um, being completely different than we expect. And if we think we are who we know ourselves to be, then we limit who we are becoming. So making room for the unknown allows magic to happen. Or let's say you go to, I just got back from some beautiful places in Italy, and I've been to Italy um, several times. So I could look at a mountain and say, oh, I've already seen this mountain. Or I could look at the ocean and, yeah, I've seen beautiful beaches all over the world. But if I'm in the present moment of wonder, of curiosity, of not knowing, then beauty appears. Then there, there's an epiphany. So revelation, learning, growth, all happens in the space of, of this um, wonderful practice of not knowing. And in Buddhism, it's called beginner's mind. Um, and at its highest octave, it takes us into what the mystics call non-dual states, where, let's say, beauty just takes our breath away and there aren't words anymore to describe what we're seeing, what we're experiencing. And the mind shuts down. We stop thinking and start stop operating in the world of words and we're just in being. We're just fully present in the present moment without the overlay of a story or thoughts that limit um, what is happening. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because in all of these spiritual traditions, there's different words to identify this state of consciousness or this state right. of being. Um, you know, in, in just our Western culture, it frequently is referred to as flow, right? So it's like, hey, do right. I want to get in the state of flow. Um, it, but you're coming from Jewish mysticism as well. And there and, are and some Buddhism. special words that kind of, and Buddhism, that identify this. What are are some of those terms that are used oh. to mm -hmm. um, for people to understand mm -hmm. what this particular level or state of consciousness is? Well, in Jewish mysticism, there's a notion of mochin de godlut, big mind. And you have that exact same uh, phrase in Buddhism. There's small mind, which is just what we need in order to function in daily life. And we are using words and thoughts and going through our day and we're thinking about things. And big mind, Godlut de Mohin, is expansive. It takes us from that lower octave of curiosity to a state of complete wonder, wonderment, astonishment, uh, beauty, these higher states of consciousness, gratitude, and just presence. 
so I would say that's the most clear um, Kabbalistic con uh, phrase that I could offer for listeners who are interested. But Jewish mystics talk all the time about uh, beginner's mind without having a, a, an exact phrase. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a mm -hmm. meditative practice called Ein meditation, which is entering into the place beyond thought, into emptiness, into divine nothingness, formlessness. And it, it's an advanced well, practice. Yeah, well, many of the things that you speak about in the book are taking people to places, which is why they should read it, that they haven't been before. And you're guiding them there um, with familiar language and an opportunity to, as we say, let go. Now, you mm -hmm. state that the yearning for wholeness will guide us to let go of our familiar lives, to move on and relocate a new place to shed the old identity and to make other significant changes in our lives. That's a beautiful statement. The bigger challenge, as you said, is that duality. How do you um, guide your clients or any people to come to your workshops and seminars to make the shedding of that side, that ego side that wants to hang on and says, you've got mm -hmm. to do this easier how do how do you actually do that well it's not actually easy because again we go back to fear people will cling to an old identity let's say a, a job they hate a marriage they're unhappy unhappy and they'll they'll cling to it just because it's familiar so stepping off and stepping into the unknown is going into a free fall so I try to help people break transitions down into smaller steps, and then it diminishes the fear. But sometimes life just plunges us into um, a huge transition that that's not of our volition. Like your house burns down, or you're fired, or your partner dies, or you become ill. You know, there there are these events that force us to grow and change and then the terrain is completely unfamiliar so i try to just um accompany people on the journey of their becoming because life is um leading them into the unknown mm -hmm. so you're you're their guide now you you tell a great story in the book about being with your grandson on the beach and you ask mm. him these questions and he says to his grandma, why do you ask so many questions? His reply was what you didn't expect. Um, yeah. Can you tell the story of just the wisdom of this little boy who <laughs> virtually opened your eyes up? It was a, a really a good story. And I thought our listeners would, would be oh. very receptive to it. Sure. Well, my grandson, Imani, came with us to Hawaii one winter, and uh, we were watching an awesome sunset. And I'm watching him watch the sunset, and I'm curious, what, you know, I start asking him a question, like, he just seemed enraptured. 
and this is a very talkative child. He doesn't stop asking questions usually, but he was completely in a state of wonder and he was annoyed by my question. And he said, why do you ask me so many questions? And I said, well, I want to know what you're thinking, what you're feeling. And I asked him, well, Imani, you ask a lot of questions. Why do you ask so many questions? And he just said to me, because I want to know everything. And it, it just kind of struck me, you know, like a, a Zen master hitting me with a stick. That childhood curiosity to know everything, that state of wonder. So that, that was that story. Yeah, it was a great story. I encourage my listeners when they get the book to to definitely read that little story because it is a way to open up and understand that the innocence of a child really is what many of us are seeking is to go back to a time in our lives when things aren't so complicated um, and open up to what is and what's available to us. Now, the Kabbalah teaches that certain kinds of questions have the power to inspire divine wisdom. Uh, Ma, I guess that's how you say it, M-A-H, is that correct? Yeah. Reflects the humble awareness that we are not separate, independent entities, but part of a vast interconnected whole, as you state in the book. How do we connect with this wholeness of God that you speak about during and in this chapter, um, what are some of the techniques, um, mm. the things that you would recommend to the listeners out there? Um, because when you do this, whether it's meditation, contemplation, or whatever your practices are, this is kind of the major connecting point where all of the outside world falls away and you become one with a higher spirit. Mm. Well, one of the things I noticed when I was writing that it's a chapter about, you know, questions and inquiry. And I noticed as I read through the Old Testament, through the Torah, that whenever God speaks to man, it's in the form of a question. And so sometimes the questions that bubble up in our minds and hearts are really God speaking to us, like God says to Adam and Eve in Eden. Uh, Ayeka, where are you? And that's a question that reverberates in all of our lives, in all of our hearts. Where am I? (laughs) Where have I? Where have I gone to? Where am I alienated? I could in in the chapter I give several other examples, but I, I think if you read throughout the Bible, that's how God speaks to us in the form of a question. The question of Ma or me in Hebrew, Ma is what and me is who. Um, Ma is bringing curiosity to everything. What is this? is a Zen koan. It's also a Jewish uh, practice to just say, what is this? Even though I know what it is, to look at it with those eyes of beginner's mind of 
what is this? Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at a rose and you, you see a rose every day and walk right by it. But if you stop and you really look at a rose and you say, what is this? And then who, me in Hebrew, it's like, who am I? Who is God? Who are you? Who are all these amazing embodiments of the divine walking on this earth? So who is the other curiosity practice? Yeah, it's and, it's so important, as you said, when God speaks to us, he speaks to us through a question. I think intuition, you talk about this in the book as well. And intuition to me doesn't come in one big download, comes mm-hmm. in many little pieces and you have to put it together, right? And I think people frequently look for epiphanies, Estelle, and it isn't mm-hmm. really the epiphany. It's all these little things that the signs, the symbols, how we're spoken to if we're open uh, and we listen to it. And you you state in the book that the dark night of the soul, you were speaking about this earlier, when everything we have ever believed in suddenly feels hollow and we witness the old structures of our lives crumbling before our lives, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job whatever it might be that you mentioned, what advice do you have for people that are dealing with this kind of darkness and uncertainty in their lives Mm. and are so afraid that they're basically, they end up in what I call kind of an inertia. They just don't move. They don't do anything as a result Mm. of it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of like you're in the birth canal being born and you just decide, Oh, I'll just stay in the birth canal. (laughs) And in a way, you spiritually die if you don't push through and allow yourself to be born into the next stage of your life. Do you follow the metaphor? Like every transition is a birth. Things happen. The old story ends. And we have to begin a new story. But in between the old and the new, there's... Um, the bardo, there's the stage of not knowing when you're not this and you're not yet that. It's sort of like between being an egg and a chicken, you're in a birth process. So that's where sometimes you, need you to can't, tolerate. Sometimes you can't hurry it, can you, Estelle? You think no. you, you physically can push it and hurry it, but w- it's right. When you're in the bardo, which is that, that term, the Buddhist term, it is this state of unknowing it's a state of as we've been speaking about in the whole book of embracing that versus you saying well it it should have happened yesterday or it needs to happen tomorrow and and our minds do go to that yeah yeah, when i when i left israel i had lived there for eight years and been married and was an orthodox jew and a believer and all that and i left that world and left that marriage and for several years i was just in the unknown allowing myself to evolve and become until I got clear what faith meant to me in a non-orthodox sense. But that was a very long transition, and those were the years where I transitioned into becoming a therapist. So a lot happened by allowing myself to shed an old identity and, and become something new. Most definitely. And, you know, 
we spoke about this a little bit earlier and you referenced music and I love how you use music in between the notes. And in your chapter on silence, you speak about this white space. And Isaac Stern once said that music is what goes on in between the notes. And how do you assist or help people take notice of this white space so that it gives them a, a different perspective in their lives? I think most people, Estelle, are waiting for the next note. They're not even noticing the white space. They're saying, okay, the music is the notes. They don't even recognize that white space. What, what do you do to, to bring them more aware that it exists? Well, I think again, like with working with fear, we begin noticing how afraid we are to just be in the white space and how cluttered our lives are with too many sound bites too much digital onslaught of information. I call the Sabbath, taking a Sabbath day or taking time for meditation, a silent walk in the woods, that's inserting white space in our lives. And when we breathe into the white spaces, we are graced and blessed with insights, with intuitions, with creativity, because it allows us to be in the not knowing and not knowing allows new insight and information to reach us from the infinite realm. So, you know, this culture is so uh, unbalanced in terms of being more interested in notes than in the space between notes or, or the letters and not the white space between the letters. Yeah, and that silence, yeah, the silence space, whether it's meditation or walk in the woods or your favorite jog or your swim or whatever it is that, you know, gets you in that space of just, you know, you're basically have let go of the mind and all the chatter that's going on inside the mind. And um, it's not that you lose focus, it's that the focus becomes on something that's much greater and more important to you. And Estelle, in your chapter on creativity and spiritual inquiry, you tell a great story about Paul McCartney and how the song Yesterday was birthed. And I was going to have you tell that story to the listeners um, because I didn't even realize that 1966 was the year and inform them what it takes to become more creative in your estimation. Oh, well, those are big questions. But, you know, in the... Paul McCartney received the music to Yesterday in a dream, and he woke up and started playing it, and he didn't know where it came from, so he thought, perhaps I heard it from friends or heard it somewhere on the radio. And so he went around asking people, do you know this song? Do you know this song? Have you heard this? And when nobody recognized it, he realized it was his own and that he had received it from a place beyond uh, thought, beyond mind, beyond effort. But then he spent months working on the words to yesterday. And, uh, you know, that took grit. So there was some combination of grace and grit in, in the creative process. 
sometimes we're graced with an insight, you know, with an artistic inspiration. And sometimes we just have to sweat and keep working, but then back up into the white space and allow ourselves to receive again another layer of grace. So, you know, maybe that's a useful tool for people to think about. I think so. I mean, you know, like I said, intuition works in interesting ways. Creativity does. I mean, creativity comes from us getting in touch with that intuition. Um, Now, for our last question, to kind of sum up our interview here, you speak about in one of your chapters, and I hope I'm going to pronounce the name right. Is it Najardin? How do you say it? N-A-S? Najardin? Najardin. Yeah, Figure. The wise fool of the Turkish Sufi mythology in search on the ground outside his home for something he lost. You tell the story and how our spiritual wedding often begins with the uneasy sense that something is missing. So we go searching for greater wholeness or enlightenment. Can you tell that quick little story mm-hmm. and the symbolism between this Tur- this Turkish Sufi mythology, because it's interesting that frequently what we're doing is we go looking for something and it's right in front of us because we think mm-hmm. it's someplace else. Mm, yeah. Well, he's the wise fool and he's on the ground outside and, and- you know, public space under a, a lamp post, uh, looking, and his friend comes along and says, "What are you looking for?" He says, "I lost my keys." His friend gets down on the ground with him, and they're looking and looking and not finding. And finally, the friend says, "Well, where where did you lose? Where were you when you lost your keys?" And Nasruddin says, "Oh, I was in the house." Well, then why are we looking out here? Nasruddin says, well, the light's better out here. <laughs> so the the story is absurd and it kind of, you know, you know, doesn't make logical sense. And you can read into the story about the foolishness of a lot of our searching outside ourselves, because really mm-hmm. the key the key to everything is at home inside ourselves. So, but we do need to go on journeys and we do need to look where the light is to realize that the key is inside our own very own hearts and very own homes, sometimes in our own spiritual traditions. So that was how I was using that story. Well, and it's a great way to sum up our interview today because the, really, the searching is with inside yourself. And this whole concept of the wisdom of not knowing, discovering a life of wonder by embracing uncertainty, is really the book asks you, for my listeners out there, to look inside yourself. It's not like we haven't had other books that do this, but this particular one is quite intriguing. I would encourage everybody, and we're going to put a link uh, Estelle to Amazon mm-hmm. to actually get the book. We're going to put a link to Estelle's website as well, um, which for you who are listening still at this point, it's estellefrankel.com. 
and we will have a link to that as well. There you can learn more about Estelle, her her spiritual teaching, her sacred therapy, uh, audio and video that's at the website as well uh, for you to take a look at. And it's Estelle, E-S-T-E-L-L-E, Frankel, F-R-A-N-K-E-L.com. That's where you would go to learn more about the book. The book is going to be uh, linked to our blog and is it, it is at Amazon and it is a Shambhala Press book. Well, Estelle, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth, spending a little bit of time with my listeners to impart your wisdom about how they better can embrace uncertainty and in fear and also move beyond it to someplace new, to a world where it may not exist for them now, but a place where they can find peace and happiness in that state of not knowing. Um, As you said, you got to finish up through the birth canal. Yes. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you for being on. 